Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, a broadcast journalist, documentary filmmaker, public health advocate. Perry Peltz is a committed, passionate, accomplished creative woman with a hell of a resume. She's worked as a reporter and co-anchor at WNBC-TV and at the network's Dateline program and cable news outlet MSNBC. There's also ABC's 2020 and CNN. Perry has won numerous awards, including several for her reporting on the misdiagnosis of melanoma. As a filmmaker, her focus has been on public health and social justice. Her documentaries, Warning, This Drug May Kill You, about the opioid addiction epidemic. The education of D.D. Ricks, which profiles disparities in our healthcare system. There's also risky drinking, remembering the artist Robert De Niro Sr., prison dogs, and her newest offering, Alternate Endings, Six New Ways to Die in America, all on HBO. Perry's directed multiple segments for the New York Times OpDocs, including a conversation about growing up black as part of its Conversation on Race series. In association with the nonprofit Robin Hood Foundation, she developed volunteer programs in the fight against poverty. Oh, there's more. The Perry Pelt Show and Dr. Radio Reports on Sirius XM. Perry has a bachelor's degree in psychology from Brown, a master's in public health from Columbia, where she is also studying for her doctorate. So, Perry, welcome, and thanks so much for coming Thank here today. Thank you so much for having me. That was, um, that was a long introduction about me. <laughs> now, what do you think when you hear that? It's a little bit all over the map, right? It's a, but it's all revolves around storytelling. So it's been it's been a that's really the tie fun, that yeah. Binds. yeah. I mean that's that's what I see. I mean I think that all of this shares some kind of curiosity about different things and um, wanting to understand different issues and communicate them. So I think that what ties it all together is is storytelling in some form or fashion. Well, I'm going to pick up on your word curiosity. Mm-hmm. Would that be a good way to define you growing up? You know what defined me, Sandy, growing up was people used to think that I was really annoying, truly, because I asked so many questions. Mm -hmm. And I remember that vividly, Mm -hmm. is that, okay, stop with the questions. And so I guess I found my way into a place where we're asking questions. You got paid for it. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Actually, actually made a difference. But it's true. So yes, I think that I have been curious. But that's also makes sense to have been a psychology major undergrad to ask questions. What, what Tell me about what I happened. I actually really focused what, you know. on biopsychology, and I was really interested and continue to be interested in the human biology behind um, behind psychology, behind Why emotions. we do what we do. Right, exactly. And what are the biological determinants of, of psychology and emotional health and emotional well-being? So that's what I studied at as an undergraduate. Right. And then um, had plans to go to medical school, which I didn't do right then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went and studied public health and looked at issues then and then made a turn and went into and went into journalism, but started as a medical reporter. So that was always my, ah, first, my first So you were book. able to marry yes. two passions in a way. It happened because of of, of public health. I was actually working as an intern at the health department here in New York City. Are you from this area? I am. I grew up here in New York. Um, I was working at the health department as an internship while I was getting my, my master's in public health up at Columbia. Right. And the way, what, how did it happen? I was writing a paper. I was helping to write a paper about the toxic exposures that children would receive in arts and crafts classes and science classes. And this is back now in the 80s. And writing a paper, just assisting the the person who was the chief investigator uh-huh. on that project. And 
they in California, they were passing a labeling law that would require that companies disclose what are in materials that children would be working with in science classes, in arts and crafts classes. And they asked my boss at the time to to participate on that show. And for whatever reason, he was unable to do it. And so they sent me, the, uh-huh. the, lowly, the lowly intern. And um, I went and was really switched on about the ability to communicate issues that really I had only seen in an academic environment. So you would, you know, be involved in writing these scholarly papers. And here was this moment. You were on the streets, right? right? And I thought, wow, this is really, really great Mm -hmm. ability to do that. And it kind of turned me in this direction of of reporting Mm -hmm. and and you know communicating at a more at a more mass level and less academic. And so that's really how how it all started started for me. It really came from a medical public health background. Do you remember back in the day that you would hear people, you know, you're gonna have to go outside because there's no way you're gonna get a job. Right. You know, in in the metropolitan area with no background, so to speak. But you didn't have to I did move go. to. I you did. did go to Iowa? I, well, I didn't go to <laughs> Iowa. However, so when I did this, this show out in California, I stayed on and I moved out to California and got a job as a as a PA, as a production assistant. For a local news station? It wasn't a local news station. It was a local news radio station, KNBR in San Francisco, which is where I, went, where I wound up, and was also doing, uh, I had three different jobs that I was doing at the same time. And then I decided I want to go do this on, on television. And I, I made a tape. And I, I look back and I think, how did I even do that? But I, I made a tape and sent it out. There was a, a service at the time that listed that you would call into a phone number and you would pay some monthly fee and it would list all of the jobs that were available in television. What and year was this? This must have been in the mid to late 1980s. And it was called Broadcasting. Whatever it was, it was fantastic. Wow. I didn't. I don't think I knew that. Okay. And you would call in. You would pay. Yeah. You would call in, and that you would get a subscription to a certain amount of time, and they would tell you all the jobs, entry level, mid-level, high level. And I would send this tape out, Sandy, everywhere. Blitz, huh? And the yes. thing that I found amazing, because nothing that was on that tape was real. I had made, you know, I was phony yeah, stories yeah. up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't pretending that. Yes. No, were. I know what you mean. Uh-huh. And I actually got a bunch of. Responses? Responses. Wound up initially getting a job in Duluth, Minnesota, of all of all. Okay, places. so that is sort of Ames, Iowa-ish, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 but I didn't take that, because, oh. <laughs> and I was about to. I uh-huh. was days away from taking it, and the last minute, there was a job opening for a medical reporter in Springfield, Massachusetts. Aha, spoke to you, right. huh? Right, and it did, because I had this background in public health. I had this background in biological sciences as an undergrad, had done a lot of, of, of work all through college um, and various public health um, enterprises. And so that did speak to me. And I wound up FedExing or overnighting, I don't even remember what it was, a tape up to this news director and calling the next day and getting his assistant on the phone. And she said, well, we'll get back to you. We've got a lot of tapes. I'm like, I don't have time. I'm supposed to job start this job next week in, in, in Duluth. And the guy was sort of amused by, the news director was, was amused by all of that. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, it was Friday. He said, if you can get up here today, I will interview you. And um, I remember I was having a goodbye lunch with my grandmother in in here in, in Manhattan. York. Yeah, and I said I gotta go. Yeah, and I <laughs> you take care of the right, check. Right, I gotta exactly. Go. I'm out of here. Long story short, I made it by four thirty to, to Springfield. Springfield. Yeah, drove up. 
interviewed with the bo- with this guy who looked at me. He said, "You've got no experience. This isn't an entry level market." And he said, "But you do have a background in 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 some kind of health, and you I'll, have moxie." I, well, definitely, <laughs> definitely had, had definitely had had some moxie. And uh, he said, "I'll give you a month trial." Wow. And so the next week, I started in Springfield. I wound up staying there for a year. Had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And your experience. knees were never knocking. You never felt like, oh my god. They're... And I don't oh, mean totally when I say did. find me out, but I mean considering that this was. I was. You know what, Sandy? You know what's great? Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, I didn't I, even yeah, know what I, I didn't that. know, yeah, and I yeah. truly didn't know what I mm-hmm. didn't know. But I learned it and um, was really will forever be grateful for that incredible opportunity and the wonderful people who I worked with um, at WGGB-TV in Springfield, Massachusetts. That's great. And stayed there for a year and then um, was able to get a job here in New York at WNBC-TV. And that's where I came. Well, that's a big deal. Also, considering back in the day when women reporters were not ubiquitous, right? right? That's right. And I mean, so it speaks volumes to your talent and ability. Or my tenaciousness. Who knows? Okay, all three. They're all important. And I don't mean to get political, but Mm -hmm. women really were not. No, they were more the minority for sure. No question about it. I think, though, Sandy, if I remember correctly, I kind of came of age at a moment when they were trying to level that playing field. I think that was true for me Uh, as well. uh, Mm -hmm. A a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because I then remember... That I sent, so I cold sent a tape to to WNBC, and again, it was a jump that probably you wouldn't have normally made going from the 110th market. Maybe you would have gone to Boston, right? Or right, something. exactly. Yeah, but they were specifically looking for for women. So I I do think that 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 it was a moment where they realized that uh, it it was women were underrepresented and it needed to be changed. So your career and the, all the stops along the way were basically a very rewarding career for you. It was amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And you made the decision when it, that it was time to leave. I'm going to go now to, uh, you know, ABC or I'm, I'm going to try CNN. I, so were... I was in Springfield for a year, had an amazing, amazing time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, wanted to come to the number one market. Sure, right? sure, That's, sure. And, and it also was, you know. I'm from New York, and mm-hmm. but I yes, I definitely I I wanted to 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 come back home, and I wanted to be in the number one market, and so you know pursued that. So yes, I made that decision. Listen, I don't have don't certainly looking back, there were moments where I didn't have control of those decisions, but at that moment, it 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 worked out, and had you know went on to WNBC, and I was there for for quite some time before right. moving on to the to the network. These decisions for you to go from one station to another were your decisions, right? At that point, yeah. Yeah, that's sure. wonderful when yeah. you can you're able to call those shots. It was it was wonderful. Didn't always happen like that, but at that moment it did. But that was what carried with you this affinity and this interest in issues, medical issues as opposed to hard news. Yes. When I came to New York, one of the things that really was was surprising to me because I had been the medical reporter in Springfield, Massachusetts mm-hmm. with my, you know, little, you know, masters in in, in public health and my limited experience. Here, they had real doctors and scientists (laughs) doing that job. So it was, um, you know, so I wound up as a general assignment reporter when I got to New York. So it was, but I loved that too. Mm. I loved, um, I loved reporting. I loved reporting in, you know, in, and, and having an opportunity to tell all sorts of stories. And right. yes, a lot of it's crime. You know, I was the weekend reporter for a long time. I remember I reported uh, 
Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday for for a really, really long time. And when you're reporting on the weekends, as as you well know, um, there aren't a lot of press conference. Government isn't operating. So you're doing a lot of police police stuff. stuff. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I remember we drive around in the live truck and they would be monitoring. We'd be monitoring the police frequency and the fire frequency and the rest of it and chasing down these these stories. And it was an incredible and wonderful experience to be able to always go to those stories and look for something. Thing that that mattered to be communicated and the human the human face of those stories. I think it's really also great to hear you speak so positively about the experiences because I've interviewed and met women where it wasn't easy being female and doing that. And I forgive the stereotyping, but it did exist, you know. You are absolutely right. There is no question about it. And I look back at the newsroom at different points in time, and certainly there was plenty of that. Sometimes I don't even think I realized it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it was just part of the of the of the fabric. However, I will say without a doubt, I was exceedingly lucky and had had a lot of opportunity and didn't feel like I was being held back as much because I was I was a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean I, I, you know, I was working in in newsrooms in the in the late '80s, but more predominantly in the in the '90s, and there was certainly a lot of that. How did you make that transition from hard news to the issues that really mattered to you? It was a fairly seamless transition, at least in news, because the more experience that you got and the higher up the totem pole you got, the more you had the ability to enterprise stories and to work on stories more. That you wanted. Right. Oh, that's exactly. great. That's right, that certainly didn't yeah. happen for a long time. I mean, I remember I would come in or they would page you. You remember the page? Oh, sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And you'd call in and they'd say, you know, the, the, the crew is meeting you on so-and-so and right. you're going to... You know, there so there was, was a, a lot of blood and guts for you. Oh, there was a lot of blood and a lot of blood and mm-hmm, guts. Mm-hmm. But again, there's you know every every one of those stories there is a human toll and there's mm. a human face and there's something that needs to be communicated about that story. And I think that the the challenge is finding that and not just reporting it for the blood and guts. Exactly, but reporting it and trying to find the, the the human essence behind that story. As I mentioned, the Robin Hood Foundation mm-hmm. is that what kind of came next from broadcast news? So, so from from local news went to went to network, network news. Right? From network news wound up going um, to to CNN as a reporter or an anchor. As an anchor, uh-huh, okay. um, but I was reporting. I was when I got to CNN, I um, was reporting, uh, doing magazine pieces, mm-hmm. you know, magazine mm-hmm. format pieces, long mm-hmm. form pieces for CNN, as well as anchoring the, the 10 p.m. news. Did you have a family at this point? So that's a great question. Yes, I, I did. And one of the reasons that I wound up at, at CNN is because I couldn't travel at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course I could, but I had three young kids at that mm-hmm. time. And, mm-hmm. and being at a magazine show it, at the networks required travel that I just found, and and you know, there are women who who do it and do it so well. At that particular time, my kids were all really young, mm. and I just had a hard time with it. And I wanted something that kept me. Yeah, I mean, that becomes your fourth child, you know, working it, in a newsroom no, like that. No oh my gosh! About it, yeah. CNN was was wonderful because I would I would be able to work in the morning and then take a big chunk of the day off and then come back and. You know, the kids were asleep at this point and do the 10 p.m. news. Well, that's a lot. You it know. is a lot. But you know what? You make it 
work. You make it yeah. work. Mm -hmm. And the ability to have time with the kids and be able to be here. And so if something, God forbid, happened or you had to get to school or mm -hmm. you wanted to see the school play or, you know, something like that, that you had that, that I had that ability. ability. And, yeah. I, and I did. And I have had some wonderful bosses. I remember the amazing Dan Foreman, um, who was my news director at one point at, at WNBC and wanting desperately to get to one of my kids' baseball games. So I was trying to switch shifts with, with another anchor reporter. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it was at the time. And it, the word got back to him. And I was thinking, I don't want to bug the news director about that. And I remember he came into my office, he sat down and he said, you go to that game. We will take wow, that's care great. That's of, great. of making sure that your you know your shift is covered. So, was really really lucky. Sure, you didn't abuse it, and and it's nice to know that these people have you know a sense of humanity. You know, yeah. life gets I, in the way. I, life does know? get in the way, and and my kids and my family obviously is you know for 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 many of us. That's the priority in trying to make that work and balance it all is, you know, mm -hmm. tell you, oh, sure. It's, it's, oh, sure. It's, it's challenging. That was one of the joys for me when I worked morning drive. You know, right. I mean, that I was home, you know, in time to go deliver the cupcakes for my kid's birthday in the first grade. Absolutely. As opposed, yes, and also I didn't have a lot of traffic driving in at 3 o'clock in the morning. Isn't, <laughs> isn't it also, Sandy, amazing how you find the silver lining in some of these things? I remember working that shift as well. It's like, well, there's no traffic. It's like, you know, who could find something positive about working well, at people 4 o'clock in the morning? I think you were nuts. I loved it. I could lead two lives. I had a, right. you know, a full-time job and a full-time life. there was one rub that I found with that really early morning shift is I remember I would walk out of there at 10 o'clock in the morning having worked a full shift and being so tired and miserable and cranky. And so, you know, you got to figure out a time to get some sleep. Right. So then you'd kind of, I'd go into mommy mode. So I, you got to find, you know, you got to make it, make it all, yeah, all I, balance it all. Right. I don't know. For some reason, that was a lot Less onerous than for me to be there from all day long. Right. You know? No, I, then, I get that. Oh, it, my God. It worked. And you know. the split shift worked. And then the, I remember I, I went for a run of, of – there was a run where I was anchoring the weekends, and I would anchor the morning and the night on Saturday and Sunday. It would count as four days. I vey. But I worked Friday, Saturday, and Sunday – Double shifted it on Saturday and Sundays, and had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off. I guess the point is, you yeah. make it, it. Yeah, there's a trade off, and if it worked for you, you know. But the, right, and here I am, and, and I and I feel as I look back. I mean, I certainly was a working mom. There's no question about it. But mm -hmm. I do feel like I was able to. To 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 mo most of the time to be the that you had a fairly I, decent I had, balance exactly. yes so you leave TV for mm -hmm. a while and you get hooked up with the Robin Hood Foundation mm -hmm. what did you do there I wound up leaving news at some point and and also the realization that at some level a lot of the crime a lot of the stories that I was reporting on, poverty was, was played a role, mm. an, an important role, and had always been fascinated by the incredible work that Robin Hood, which is an organization, a nonprofit organization here in New York City, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, and they fund, uh, I don't know what the number is now, but when I was there, about 211 really grassroots, poverty-fighting nonprofit organizations here in New York. Well, and that's they do a lot. an mm -hmm. amazing, amazing, amazing job of it. And a friend of mine was working there, and he said, you know what? There's this job. Come try it. 
And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that. I, at, at the time, again, it was thinking about the kids and their schedules. It felt like they were probably in that fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade mm-hmm. range. And mm-hmm. it felt like a good time to have a job that can, that kind of coincided with their school day. And I did it, and I loved it. So Robinhood funds all of these various nonprofits, but they also provide support in, in other ways if you need legal, if these organizations need legal help, accounting help, volunteer help, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And my job was to help with the assessments of what other support they needed and to try and develop volunteer opportunities to support the various work that these nonprofits did. And then the interesting thing, and this is what brings me back to news, is I was there and it became a running joke because I would go and visit these nonprofits to make these assessments. And I would walk in and they would look at me and recognize Recognize you, yeah. Uh-huh. And they'd say, you know what we really need? What we really need is attention drawn to our mm-hmm. nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We need a news story. And after a while, it became kind of more than a joke. It became a realization that actually they did. Mm-hmm. They really did need the attention and a spotlight and the opportunity for people in the city to learn about what they were Their doing. good work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so- I went back to the amazing Dan Foreman, who I've already mentioned, (laughs) and said to him, there are these incredible organizations, Dan. They're here in New York. And look, this is right under our nose. Right. Like there was a nun in the South Bronx who had opened a prison. And there was, you know, there were just these incredible stories. And Mm -hmm. I remember sitting there with him telling him with great excitement and enthusiasm about all these stories. And he kind of looked at me and said, you know, you know, you're asking somebody in local news to do good stories, right? And <laughs> is that an oxymoron? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I said, yeah, I guess that is what I'm what I'm talking about. And he said, you know what? Let's try it, and let's see how it goes. And so I did, and it worked really, really well. And it, I look back, and you know, it was funny because here I'd kind of worked my way back to local. Yeah, news. yeah. And um, I look back, Sandy, and it was one of the most enjoyable moments. Of, and rewarding yeah, like that. To yeah. be able to highlight the important work that was being done in the city by incredible people yeah. Yeah. who weren't getting any any spotlight, any mm-hmm. recognition, any attention. So it was really, 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 really rewarding. And I, I only wish that when I was doing that, that the internet was alive in the fulsome way that it is now that we could have engaged the audience because the real goal was to try to engage the audience to get involved in some form with these are these nonprofits and it didn't quite work that way but it was really really rewarding That's, to be able to so tell those great. stories so as i said in the introduction as i rattled off quite a few documentaries I'd like to move into that part of your great. life that's obviously was your next step that you could marry commitment and passion that's exactly right. The first one was um, was the Dee Dee Ricks film that I made about breast cancer disparities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was just your idea. So what happened was that was interesting. So now I'm kind of trying to figure out what the what the next step is. And a good friend of mine actually called me and said, you know, there's this wonderful woman. She's an amazing powerhouse. Her name is Dee Dee Ricks. And she had breast cancer. And you should talk to her because she is an inc- has an incredible story about breast cancer disparities. And the reason that my girlfriend told me about this is that the issue that I had w- really was focused on in, in graduate school had been healthcare disparities and the woefully yeah, right. unacceptable disparities mm-hmm. that happened in this country. And if you want to look at it from breast cancer, 
cancer. Um, what happens if you do not have access to, to medical care, to health insurance, and don't get a mammogram? The chances of your dying of breast cancer are, you know, I don't, I don't want to right. say any numbers because I don't know where it is right, right. now, but the, it, it's just, it's a different disease. And of course, the, the, real, the, the, the reason why is if you are diagnosed early, Breast cancer is an incredibly treatable mm-hmm. disease, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it, it, and you knock wood, you can get that taken care of. But what if you're not? Breast cancer is a very can be a very Vicious. aggressive, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so what happened with um, with with Dee Dee Ricks? I went and met her, and um, she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And of course, she was she was in the hedge fund world. She had access to great health care. She had great health insurance, and. While she's being treated, she has a moment of, wow, the bills start to arrive. And she's thinking, why are the bills showing up? I've got this great health insurance. Well, the answer is, is that bills show up, right? Your health insurance doesn't cover. You might as well have been talking about 2019. Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So she has this moment and she says, you know what? I want to know what happens to those women who don't have health insurance. She went um, to Robin Hood, so it takes us back to Robin Hood. Robin Hood sends her to meet the amazing Dr. Harold Freeman, who at the time was running the Ralph Lauren Cancer Center up in Harlem. And he says, she says, you know, Dr. Freeman, he's, he's, an, he's an incredible physician and uh, trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering in the 60s, African-American physician, recognizes that there's this incredible disparity between um, women of color and, and white women in the terms of the treatment they were receiving and their survival rates. And she, and Dr. Freeman says, you know what? You're asking a great question. I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to show you. And introduces her to a woman named Cynthia who had a very similar breast cancer to Dee Dee, who was being treated at the Ralph Lauren Center. But of course, she didn't have her breast cancer detected early. She didn't have health insurance. She didn't get a, a mammogram. She went, when she realized there was something wrong with her breast, she went to several different places around the city. Um, she was went to a clinic. The clinic said, you've got tendinitis. So she sat with it for another six <laughs> oh, months, Jesus. and it got worse and worse and worse. And long story short, by the time she finds her way to the Ralph Lauren Center in Harlem, she's got advanced breast cancer, mm. breast disease. And what year is this? This was now, this was about 10 years years ago. Okay. Is that right? Nine years okay. ago. The long and the short of it is that Dee Dee and she become really good friends and Dee Dee tries her best, her breast, Cynthia's breast cancer, they, they, they do a, um, a mastectomy. They remove one of her breasts, but unfortunately it was too late. It was already in her lymph nodes. It metastasized. Dee Dee took her and did everything in her power to get her treated. Um, but unfortunately she lost her battle with, with breast cancer. And it was the story of their wonderful, wonderful friendship, but really the story of what happens in this country if you do not have access to the health care that you need and you deserve and is your right, in my humble opinion. And, um, it, you know, it's two women, right? One woman had access to health care and one woman didn't. And their their outcomes were woefully different and unacceptable. So in addition to the actual story, the whole process resonated with you. You see what the power is in terms of documentaries oh. and how they can expose and educate. To me, documentaries should be shown everywhere, you know. And so that's obviously what set you going, correct? That must it have was, opened so many physical Well, and it was one of those doors. moments like, whoa, this is unbelievable. First right. of all, 
as you know, working on on something for a year, right, was this, you know, I, I came from the world of yeah, the day of air. Get it done news. yesterday. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you put some, you were signed in the morning and it's on the air and you right. go home and you do it again the next day. That must have been a real so hard switch for you. So this was just like, where has this world been? Uh-huh. Um, so, and I really loved it. And I really loved the opportunity to dig into a story in a way that I never had been able to and to think about the way you're presenting it and artistically and creatively. And um, it was- Did you do this all by yourself? That film, yes, that I did. So you had all the titles. So what happened on on that one is Didi, when we first met, presented me with two big boot boxes of tapes that she had been shooting. And she had run out of money. Uh-huh. To shoot it, and she handed me all of these tapes. And I remember, Sandy, I went home, and I screened all of them. And I thought, Oh my gosh, here's this story that I care about—the disparities of healthcare. But it's in this incredible story and this incredible woman. And she hadn't at that yes, at that point she had met Cynthia, but they were still just, you know, along the process. I took, you know, jumped in at that point, um, and we started filming from that that point forward. And then at the end, when when we were done, uh, Sheila Nevins, who ah, HB, amazing oh, Sheila, yeah. Sheila yeah. Nevins, um, I was able to get the, the uh, DVD copy to her. She watched it, which was amazing. So you did both for your for, for most of your films, director and producer. Yes, absolutely. You had a crew. You know, on that one, a very, 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 very lean crew because at the time I was I was funding it. I, yeah, and, sure. And said, I didn't even know what I didn't know. Right, right. Because right. I, I, hear, I hear that a lot from the women I interviewed. And, I, and yeah. I look back and I think it's a really good thing I didn't know because Absolutely. I don't know honestly that I would have stuck with it. But I, but I did, and I we had a very lean crew. We shot it. Um, had a great editor. And then the great news, because where a lot of the expense comes in, obviously, is in the post-production. You know, at that point, HBO took over. And, you know, I went to the, I went there. We finished the edit, um, did the post-production. It aired on HBO. And it was it's called The Education of, of Dee Dee Ricks. And what was great, because Dee Dee is such a, a, a powerhouse, is we were able to do some really great outreach around the film. And... Um, helping women access the care they need, the screening that they need, because it's all about so early, early detection. detection. Yeah. And, um, you know, Cynthia her, her is unfortunately no longer with us. She was really an incredible woman. And, and interestingly, I had done a story when I was doing the Robin Hood pieces at WNBC, had done a piece about the Ralph Lauren Center and Dr. Freeman, and Cynthia had been the person. So to come back to her Oh, that's story crazy. Yeah. Was, was, was yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's how it, that's how the turn. There's to so much here to talk about. Alternate ending: six new ways to die in America. Okay, why did you give birth to that film? So what happened with that film is it goes back to to Sheila Nevins, um, and Sheila had decided that, and and rightly, that death is something that we we had been looking at two possibilities one was a documentary about longevity and started researching in that and of course that's really interesting right we're looking at mice who are living longer because they were taking this molecule and all sorts of really cool things and people love hearing about longevity right who doesn't and i remember sheila um, calling and saying you know what wrong story 
we're so focused on longevity and looking at longevity and we're taking our eye off the very important ball, we all die. And we don't talk about it in this country and we need to see what's going on in that in that field. And she she teamed me up with an amazing filmmaker, um, Matt O'Neill, who is a very experienced documentary filmmaker, far more experienced than I am or certainly was. And uh, we started on this journey of trying to figure out what was happening in this space and what we what we realized is that the death the business of death is being disrupted in this country more people now are cremated than are buried and but that's that's just the beginning of it sandy cuz really what's happening is some people or people are beginning to embrace the end of life in a way that I was unaware of and trying to make choices about end of life that are proactive and to do it in a way where they're able to be less fearful. And I certainly came from a world where I know my mother has been trying to talk to me about, you know, her will and what's going to happen when she dies. And every time she does it, I'm like, yes, you know, don't die. I don't want to hear about it. Right. I don't want to hear about Your it. Don't write up, up yeah. my, my mm-hmm. fingers and my ears. And yeah. You know what? It's wrong. Mm-hmm. We all die. It's what we all have in common. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so we started, Matt and I started looking at these different stories of people who were doing different things, disrupting the death industry, the death business, um, in a way where they were able to embrace the end of life. And when people say, oh, my gosh, you worked on a a film about death, the, the truth is, and I have to say this about the film, we feel it's empowering. And it's, yes, it, there are moments that are sad, right? Because death is sad. But death is also a part of life, and right. a part of the life cycle. And we, you know, we, the more I think we talk about it, the more we embrace it, the better off we are. Well, it's very interesting because when I was approached to watch this film and I was told what it was about, I said, wow, this is really very personal to me. My husband passed away oh, in I'm 2015. So sorry. So I think that, again, your documentaries and documentaries in general are providing public services, you know. So how did you come about getting the six people in your film to agree to do this? It's a great question. And I have to take a moment because I am always blown away, humbled, honored when somebody trusts you to tell their story and especially a story that comes at a moment yeah. of great sadness, right. of meaning, a time when families want privacy. Right. To be able to share those stories is uh, is it's it's a it's a re- I I believe this with every fiber in my in my body as does Matt that the opportunity to tell those stories is a real real privilege. So our profound thanks always to people who are willing to do well, that. Well, they felt safe with you too. They, yeah, no, you know? I think that's I I think that's right, and we're gratified by the fact that the you know that that they have been have they felt good about this about the experience. As far as how we got them. I would say it was a shared experience. We met with them. Obviously, that they were even meeting with us would indicate that they had some inclination to want to communicate their story. Most of them said, you know what, let's start. Let's see what it feels like. It's hard for people to understand what it means to have a camera um, recording them. 
right? It, until it actually is happening. We try, we, we, we did this, we produced this film in a way with a, the small a footprint as we possibly could. Most of the time... It's not to be intrusive. It was just the yeah. two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt is an incredible cinematographer on top of being a documentary a producer and director. I was even, you know, doing audio for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. We really kept this very small because we wanted to keep our presence yeah. as removed as we possibly possibly could. But that being said, it's still the two of us, right? And who wants the two of us hanging around mm-hmm. at that moment? But um, it was a shared conviction, a shared experience. The people who shared their stories wanted to, wanted to communicate something, you know, and whether it was the case of a family who's the father of this young woman um, who wanted uh, his ashes to be buried at sea to be a part of the coral reef because her father was an environmentalist and loved the ocean and wanted to give back in some way. Or it was um, a family, you know, a, a man who had made the decision to do medical aid in dying, which is the medicine that is available now in, in eight states in this country, felt really important that these were stories that needed to be told. And we feel privileged to have been the people that that they trusted to tell those stories. How long did it take you to? A long time. Yeah. Beginning to end, I would say, and that's including the edit. It was a year and a half in in the making. And a, a very, very, people, again, you know, said, oh, was it depressing? Was it depressing? And yeah, there were moments where a lot of people were dying around us. and But it wasn't depressing. It was such an honor to be able to be with them at those moments. And... Um, it was so it was a it was a great experience. Was it interesting to you, and this may seem like such mm. a bizarre question, that the with the exception of one focus of your documentary, everybody was older? I understand your your question and it's a good one. When we talk about choice in death, mm-hmm. typically it's going to be people who are older, right? We didn't have a story of anybody who was in an accident. We didn't have a story of anyone who, yes, I mean, there, there is the, this, you know, there's a story of, uh, of one woman, Barbara Jean, who is in her, 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 her mid sixties who had pancreatic cancer. It's obviously well ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were, you know, there were experiences like that, but in general, they were people who knew the end was was coming. Yeah. So there was that. What was it like with the families after the fact? So we had the real a wonderful experience just a few weeks ago. We were out in Aspen at the Ideas Festival there and screened one of the stories, which was the story of the man, um, Dick Shannon, who had uh, cancer that had metastasized to his lungs. It originated um, as, as bone cancer. And he was the the gentleman who decided he was going to take the medicine when the when the time came because he came because he didn't he wanted to have a quality of life and mm-hmm. didn't want to live as a sick man and felt very strongly as a vital person an engineer a guy who was doing a lot of things um, married fifty seven years to a woman who wasn't necessarily cheering for him to to do, do this. this yeah but she, their love was such that she respected Expected. his mm-hmm. decision and mm-hmm. and and I my my hats out to to Lewis Shannon um who because I don't know if I could have done that I don't I don't I don't know how I would have been I don't and she was his greatest champion and she didn't want it she wanted him to hang around mm-hmm. and 
But he tried every treatment that there was, and there got we got you know there was a point where the doctor said it's it's done, yeah. right? It's yeah. we, don't, we don't have anything left. On some level, that is empowering to make that acknowledgement, not so much for her, but for her husband. That was my husband. You know, what's there is no point anymore, right? You know, oh, it's it's, it's brutal. Yeah, but as brutal as it is. What's the other opposite word of that? Was it liberating? I don't know. I think for Dick, it was liberating, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, He felt very strongly, and as you see in the the piece, he felt very, very strongly that the decision about when his life would come to an end was his decision. Mm -hmm. And yes, he was in no rush to die. He makes that really clear. He loves his family, two daughters. Uh, There was a, a grandchild on the way. A wife he adored. And he's very clear that this is, you know, he didn't want to live a certain way. He wanted to get out while. How can you not respect that? You can't, right, exactly. And felt and honor so that. strongly mm-hmm. about it that he wanted to communicate that. My hat's out to Delua because she did it. And yes, there were a lot of tears, but there was also a lot of smile and a lot of support and a lot of, all right, this is what you want to do. We're going to make it the best possible. Uh, experience that we possibly can. That you could all be on board. Right. And it's, of course, it's painful and it's horrible. Oh, awful. But the little that you have left where you can be in control must really be. Yes. What? I keep using the word empowering. But it is empowering. And and that's. That's the word that we use, that we use too, is that every time we think about it, it's empowering. I can't imagine on some level what this must be like to make documentaries like this that become so much a part of your DNA. They do. <laughs> and then having them end, even though that they're there for you to see, you know, forever. What is that like? Oh, it's such a good question, right? Because you spend so much time. I mean, unlike news. Yes. Right? Oh, that's Where so good. Where you yes. are uh, yes. in and out. Yep. Yep, yep. And you touch. Just the facts, ma'am. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't have time for the emotional yep. story. Yeah, right? yeah, I got to get got, going. Yeah, because I got the next one to do. That's, that's exactly right. And this is, Danny, this is different, right? You are you are in their lives. We spent eight months with the Shannon family. We were a part of that family. We really, really, I know it sounds cliche, but we were. And we grieved when he died. And How could we, you not Right, be? exactly. And, and if you um, weren't, there's something wrong with you. No, we we were we we were. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, and it's hard to move on, and mm-hmm. you do move on because because you do move. There's on, another right? story to they, tell. We're though. not oh, at the end of the day. We're not a part of their family. Their mm-hmm. family's going to go on. They've had a grandchild. We stay in touch. We we were with them, and when we screened the film in Aspen, we will be with them again. We stay in touch. We text. We do mm-hmm. all those things. Mm-hmm. But we're we've we've we you know we're on to another project. Delua is going to be on to promoting this film and talking about medical aid and dying and, mm-hmm. and is going to spread the word in, in her way. So I, it is one of those things, right? It's just one of those funny things. But I don't know that you ever really say goodbye to it. It's always a part of your uh, of your experience. And um, Well, it's birthing. Yeah, exactly. There's something else. No, it's very true. Of a documentary. And about dying when you're with somebody and they're most, I mean, there's what you know, there's just not a lot more that's more personal. <laughs> really? Than that's death. true. That's true. We're running out of time, although we could go on for days. I did say I wanted you to just, if you can briefly yes. talk about Robert De Niro Sr. And then I just want to know what's 
on the horizon. Okay. Remembering the artist Robert De Niro Sr. Robert De Niro, the actor, is junior, just FYI. Right, right, right. And his father, Robert De Niro Sr., was an amazing artist. I don't think I knew Painter. that. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what? I didn't either. And his paintings, if you're ever in Tribeca and you go to the Tribeca Grill or La Condoverde of any of those restaurants that, that, that uh, he He's owned, on display. All the paintings are on display. And I thought that they were his paintings. I thought he painted. He doesn't. He doesn't paint. His father did. He was an amazing, amazing, amazing painter. And Robert De Niro Jr., the actor, really, his father um, came of uh, painting age at a time when this this country was shifting to abstract art. And his okay. father, who was a very, very successful artist, was um, did not paint in an abstract way at all. And he fell off the, uh, the limelight. Mm-hmm. And it's the story of, of 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 what happens to him. His father was also gay, led a, a closeted life oh, because wow. the, in the 1940s and 1950s, that's the way he felt that he needed to live. But he, the, you know, he it comes out in the in the film and um, an extraordinary story. And what an incredible opportunity to work with 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 Robert De Niro and and Jane Rosenthal, who is the executive producer from Tribeca. Becca, yeah, again, an incredible opportunity to tell a wonderful story. How great for you, That's right? Been fun. It's been it's been great. I I feel. Let me tell you something. I feel like uh, uh, when it comes to to career, I've, I've been really really lucky. Well, there's also talent. Anything you want to share? That's yeah, well coming up. Yes. So so the the film alternate and right. sixty ways to die in America on on HBO right available on HBO. And Matt and I have been working on Axios on HBO, mm-hmm. which is a documentary news series uh, that we do with Axios. That's also on on HBO, as the title suggests. And we are going to be finishing our second season coming up in November, mid October to mid November. And uh, excited about that. Excited about to be opportunity to tell stories in a documentary news way, but about very much about uh, the political, the tech, the media worlds in which we live right now. Well, not for nothing, seems logical that one of your projects should be about you. It's a varied and wonderful and exciting. Oh, Sam, and thank you. And thank you for from... this incredible opportunity. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. I just love what I do. It's just so great. It's fun, right? Oh, it's the best. Continued success. Thank you Perry so Pels. much. It was so great to meet you. Thank you. And know. thank you so much for having me. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Sandy Klein.